We're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We have been already for a couple of weeks. It's a chapter that contains some of the New Testament's most significant teaching about our future. But Paul also wants us to see how our expectation for the future impacts our life here and now, today. As Christians, we are people living for resurrection. So if you haven't found that yet in your Bible, it's page 1156 in the church Bible or in the larger print Bibles, 1788. Now we're going to be beginning at verse 29, but we know from earlier in this chapter, there are some in the Corinthian church who say there is no resurrection of the dead. Paul has already begun to respond to that by showing what that would mean for Christianity if it was true. He said our faith would be futile, we would still be in our sins, and those who had died trusting in Christ would be lost. But having given a glimpse of how bleak life would be without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul went on to point out the good news. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And not only has he been raised, he has been raised to reign. That reign has already begun, and it will result in the restoration of all creation. All that Adam put wrong will be put right. The outcome of Christ's reign will be an eternal kingdom where God is all in all. No more brokenness, no more rebellion, just the peace and wholeness creation was always meant for. Peace and wholeness that come with the uncontested rule of God. And now having shown us where things are headed because of Christ's resurrection, Paul comes back to the present in verse 29. And he has more to say to those resurrection deniers in the church. We'll read from verse 29 down to verse 49. Now, if there is no resurrection... What will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. 
But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. This is God's word. Earlier in the chapter, Paul asked us to think about the consequences if there was no resurrection. Here, he takes a slightly different angle and asks us to make sense of how Christians live their lives. Surely the only thing that explains the behavior of Christians is their resurrection hope. And Paul starts out talking about behavior that sounds very, very strange. Verse 29, he says, Now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized for them? What does Paul have in mind? What does he mean by baptism for the dead? Well, as far as I can see, there are two possibilities for what he might mean. Of course, there have been lots and lots of different suggestions, but I think it boils down to just two possibilities. The first possibility is that some people in the church were being baptized for the benefit of the dead. Maybe a family member had died without trusting in Christ, and the Christian who was alive went through baptism hoping it would somehow help or save their dead relative. That is one way to understand verse 29. But there are two big reasons why I don't think it's the correct understanding. First reason is it goes totally against Paul's teaching. It goes totally against the teaching of the rest of the New Testament. The consistent teaching of the New Testament writers is that salvation comes through faith in Christ. The idea that I could do something, some ceremony that would save another person who didn't have faith in Christ, that is so directly against New Testament teaching I think it's just about impossible to believe Paul would mention it here without blowing a gasket about it. In other words, if the Corinthians were doing this with this intention, Paul would have objected and he would have objected strongly. But the fact that Paul mentions baptism for the dead so nonchalantly 
That is a big clue. It does not mean people were being baptized for the benefit of the dead. And there's a second big reason counting against that understanding. It's the fact that there is no evidence people did get baptized for the benefit of the dead. There's no historical evidence for it either in the early church or in the pagan society outside the church. People did not get baptized in the place of others. So then what's the other possibility for what this might be referring to? Baptism for the dead could mean baptism on account of the dead. Well, how is that different from the other meaning? It means people were being baptized because of the teaching or the influence of others who had died. Earlier in the chapter, Paul mentioned some of the witnesses to the resurrection who had already died. It's entirely possible that men and women who heard those eyewitnesses later on came to faith and went through baptism. Their baptism was in large part on account of the witness of those believers who were now dead. I would guess that some of us here this morning have personal experience that is somewhat similar to that. Maybe we had a Christian relative, maybe a parent or a grandparent or a Sunday school teacher. And although we didn't respond to their influence or their teaching while they were alive, they made enough of an impact on us that we did come to Christ later. We can point to them as a significant factor in our conversion to Christ, maybe even the most significant factor. Maybe in our baptism testimony, some of us even said we were being baptized on account of someone who hadn't lived to see us baptized. Their influence brought us to Christ in the end. And so there's a real reason, a real sense in which we go through baptism in the expectation that we will see those loved ones again. We know where they've gone and we want to be with them in the presence of Christ. I think that is the most likely explanation for what Paul means by baptism for the dead. And his point in mentioning it here is very simple. Those men and women being baptized are motivated by resurrection hope. They have come to Christ because of faithful witnesses who have gone ahead. And they want to see those faithful witnesses again. They look forward to joining them where they are. The point is resurrection hope is woven through all that we do as Christians. It enters into all we do from the very first steps we take as Christians. Paul shows in verse 30 how it enters into his own particular situation. He says, and as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? There are several places in the New Testament where Paul shows what he means by endangering himself. 
He's not talking about getting laughed at. He tells us he went through beatings many times, imprisonments, hunger, even shipwrecks. On at least one occasion, he took such a bad beating, his attackers dumped him outside the city thinking he was dead. Here he mentions fighting wild beasts in the city of Ephesus. Now that may mean literal wild beasts, but it's more likely Paul is referring to a riot that kicked off while he was in the city. His enemies were behaving like wild beasts in that situation. They wanted to tear him apart if they could just get to him. All of those various dangers came to Paul because he preached about Jesus. It was only resurrection hope that sustained Paul through all that. It was only resurrection hope that kept him getting back on his feet for some more of the same treatment. In fact, that is what Paul tells us himself. That's the motivation he gives us. In 2 Corinthians, he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. What was it that enabled Paul to persevere through trial? Only his confidence that God raises the dead. We could say the same thing about countless other Christians and Christian missionaries, men and women around the world who carry on in the face of great persecution and hardship. Daily trials. If those men and women believed that death is the end, they couldn't do what they do. They simply could not persevere in those difficult situations. Some people are adventurous, yes. I know some people have pioneering spirits. But having an adventurous, pioneering spirit can only get you so far. It doesn't get you this far. Only resurrection hope can keep you faithful to Christ in the face of persecution, in the face of enemies that come at you like wild beasts. Paul wants us to see resurrection hope makes all the difference now. It assures us the path of faithfulness and sacrifice for Christ leads to eternal fulfillment. And resurrection hope also assures us our faithfulness and our sacrifice will have eternal lasting value. The things we go through will produce fruit that lasts forever. We've already considered how the faithfulness of others has probably impacted some of us so that we could even say we were baptized on account of their influence on us. Their lives were driven by resurrection hope and it changed our lives. And Paul says, let's think about the flip side of this. The flip side is lack of resurrection hope 
also makes all the difference here and now. Look at the end of verse 32. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul is not saying every non-Christian lives with that kind of hedonistic attitude. Of course they don't. But in that case, he wants us to see they are living illogical lives. That's the point. Without resurrection hope, this is the logical way to live. Party like there's no tomorrow. Because as far as you know, there is no tomorrow. Why would you build anything with your life? Why would you persevere in any endeavor? Why would you sacrifice? Why would you be faithful? It's all for nothing. Just party while you can. Someone has said resurrection means endless hope. But no resurrection means a hopeless end. Our expectation or lack of expectation for the future makes all the difference to our lives now. If we have no resurrection hope, we either spend our lives trying to avoid thinking about the long-term future, trying to keep busy and distracted, or we face up to the reality of our hopelessness and we turn life into one long bender trying to make the party last as long as possible before the lights go out. If you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to think about the truth of that. Whether or not you have hope for the future, it cannot help but affect your life now. It cannot help but impact your resilience and your peace of mind. And the kind of person you are toward other people. And those of us who are Christians, are we nurturing our resurrection hope? Or are we allowing it to fade? Because we're so caught up in a world that denies the resurrection. That was at least part of the problem in the Corinthian church. In verse 33, Paul says to them, Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Whether the culprits were pagans outside the church or whether they were false friends in the church, some of the Corinthians are being led away from resurrection hope. The company they're keeping is not helpful to them. They need to come to their senses and build resurrection hope. Because to be without it, Paul says, is to be ignorant of God. How can we truly know God if we have no hope in his eternal purposes? This letter has been full of issues that are appearing in the church in Corinth. And at least part of the reason for those issues is because the resurrection hope of these people is dim. They're characterized, at least some of them, by disunity, by sexual promiscuity, by a lack of concern for others. 
those things grow in strength as our resurrection hope loses strength. Without resurrection hope, we lose our willingness to sacrifice now. We lose our willingness to be self-disciplined now and care for others now. So what am I doing, what are you doing to keep your resurrection hope bright and alive? Do you spend time regularly with people who build up your resurrection hope? We have to do that. We cannot afford to spend all our time with people whose horizon goes no further than the next paycheck or the next promotion or the next football match or the next addition to their house. We have to share our lives with people who help us Remember, God raises the dead. Maybe some of us are thinking, okay, but we are talking here about something that is totally alien to our experience. Our experience is things die and they rot in the ground. They decompose and they disperse. They don't reconstitute and rise again. So don't just tell us to build resurrection hope. Give us some help, please. That's a fair point. And Paul anticipates it here. In verse 35, he says, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Help us with this. And that's what Paul does. He assures us we can imagine and anticipate resurrection. For two reasons in in this passage. First of all, because our God is the great artist of life. We can see his life-giving artistry all around us, beginning with the smallest of things, seeds. Seeds show God is well-practiced in bringing transformed life out of death. Look at verse 36. How foolish, Paul says. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed. Literally, a naked seed. So the idea is the seed is waiting to be clothed with its true splendor. It was never intended to be just a seed. So going on in verse 37, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Paul's point is the seed must die before it can really live. You don't buy a packet of seeds and set the packet in your hanging basket for people to admire. Those seeds will only truly come to life, they'll only show their full potential on the other side of death. That is how God set things up. So the great artist of life, he has form when it comes to bringing transformed life out of death. 
He has shown his hand in this since Genesis chapter 1, when he covered his new earth with what? Seed-bearing plants. He's been showing us his ability ever since then. And Paul says we can apply that to what God is going to do with us. If you look down to verse 42, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Our bodies are not discarded at death, not as far as God is concerned. They are planted. They're planted in the weakness we're all too familiar with so that they will be raised one day in power, glory, and imperishability. Our bodies must die before they can really live. And so we are a long, long way here from any idea of a shadowy ghost world where spirit people are reclining on clouds. That is not the New Testament teaching on resurrection. We're talking about future bodies that are more real and more alive than the ones we have now. The great artist of life is not only skilled in bringing life out of death, he has shown his ability to create an almost infinite variety of life. That's already on display when it comes to the life that comes from seeds. Seeds themselves can often be very hard to distinguish from one another. Just try losing the labels on a bunch of seed packets and then trying to sort them all out. Many of them look indistinguishable. But what grows from those similar looking seeds will be a stunning variety of plants and flowers. Paul picks up on that at the end of verse 38. To each kind of seed, God gives its own body. Then in verse 39, we move from variety of seeds to variety of flesh. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. And then consider the kinds of bodies God has placed in the sky, in the heavens. Verse 40, there are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. The point is, God didn't just create seed life, flesh and blood life, and planetary life. Paul wants us to see that within each of those categories, he produced a wide variety. Mars and Mercury are not interchangeable as far as I know. Neither are roses and hydrangeas. Neither are cats and dogs. If you've compared cats and dogs, you know that. Cats are so different from dogs and so much better than dogs. (laughs) 
the great artist of life has demonstrated the variety of his creative ability. And so he is well able to create not just a body like this for us, he can produce a body that is fit for eternal life in a perfected creation. Down in verse 44, Paul says this natural body will be sown. Whether that sowing happens through burial or cremation doesn't really matter. It will be sown a natural body only to be raised a spiritual body. And spiritual here does not mean non-physical. It means a body that is animated by the Spirit of God. It's empowered in every way it needs to be for new creation life. If you think of the difference between a ship that is driven by wind and a ship that is driven by steam, the difference is not so much in what they're made of, it's what they're powered by. That's the kind of distinction we're talking about between natural and spiritual bodies. So this is not about having no bodies at the resurrection. It's about having new bodies with new power. So if you and I consider what the great artist of life has already done, creating everything out of nothing, a world brimming with such varied kinds of life. When we consider that, and there's so much of it we can just look at, as we consider that, we will see creating new resurrection life, it's no real challenge to our God's abilities. But Paul gives a second reason why we can imagine and anticipate resurrection. We already have a resurrected forerunner. We saw last week how Jesus' resurrection was not just a garnish on the side of God's plans. It was central to God's purposes for the rest of history. The risen Jesus is the first fruits of her great harvest of resurrection. So Jesus is our Savior, yes. He is our King, yes. But what's significant here is Jesus is our forerunner. The book of Hebrews calls him our pioneer. We can imagine and we can anticipate resurrection because Christ has risen. How did Paul know that resurrection bodies are imperishable, glorious, and powerful compared to these bodies? How did he know that? He knew it because he had met one. Paul met the risen Jesus. So did hundreds of others. So when Paul speaks about our resurrection bodies, he's not guessing. He knows. Paul has seen the glory of a resurrection body. And because Jesus is the first fruits, because he is our forerunner, we know about the glory our resurrection bodies will have. Elsewhere, Paul can say that our lowly bodies will be transformed so they will be like Christ's glorious body. 
Last week we saw how Adam was appointed head of humanity way back in the beginning. And as head of humanity, he led us into sin and death. We saw last week how the risen Jesus is head now of a new humanity. And he will lead us out of sin and death. Paul returns to that contrast in verse 45. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that's Jesus Christ, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual, and again here we're talking about a real body, but a body empowered and animated by the Spirit of God. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. We were all born, men and women, of the earth. We're all born part of Adam's fallen humanity, destined for death. But through faith in Christ, we are born again, as men and women now, of heaven. That doesn't mean we came from heaven. It means we're associated with heaven through our forerunner, Jesus. He is from heaven, and his people are now of heaven heaven and we will bear his image or as first john says we shall be like him that's what it means to bear his image and it's an amazing thing to think about so often as christians we rightly emphasize how unlike us jesus is in his sinlessness in his perfect obedience But the New Testament promises us our destiny is to become like him. One writer says, in the end, our end is Jesus. Made like him, like him we rise. That's what the song says, and it will be true of us someday. And so we don't need to cling desperately to our youth. We don't have to get bitter when our health and strength begin to ebb away, as they do. We know we have a resurrected forerunner and we will be like him. In bodies like his, more glorious than these ones have ever been. And doesn't that sure and certain resurrection hope make all the difference here and now? Doesn't it help us realize so much of the stuff we fret over here and now, so much of the losses that knock us off our feet emotionally, yes, they are real losses, and no, we don't enjoy them, we're not supposed to. But as we think of this, Aren't those losses really light and momentary compared with the resurrection life that's ahead of us? Can't we trust the great artist of life 
to deliver something so much better than what we lose? Can't we trust our resurrected forerunner to share his new creation with us? If he died for us, won't he share what he died for with us? The hymn writer Fanny Crosby was blind from just after birth. But she would always tell people not to feel sorry for her. Why? Because, she said, the first face I'm ever going to see will be Jesus' face. From her perspective, her great weakness here and now was only going to make resurrection life all the sweeter in the future. That's what resurrection hope does for us. It gives us an eternal perspective on the dishonor and the weakness we experience here and now. Even in the midst of those things, we can say, as many Christians have said and do say, we can say to other people, don't feel sorry for us. Don't pity us. We are going to be like Jesus. The same power that raised Jesus is going to raise us. The great artist of life has great things in store for us. Our last song helps us to build our resurrection hope. It helps us to look forward to what Jesus has in store for us. In resurrection bodies... We'll rise to meet the Lord. <laughs>